Whenever I was growing up, I didn't like going to church. I'm just going to be frank with you. I I really didn't. Uh, I, I often came up with excuses to get out of going to church. I became a really good liar in that time of my life unfortunately. But it, it wasn't because church was necess- like bad. I, some of my best friends I met at church. But for some reason, every single time we went to church, there was always this one weird person who would stand up at the front, you know, a little over halfway through the service, and that weird person would just start talking about something that I didn't really understand all the time. And they just kept going basking in the limelight, and they kept going, and then whenever they were done, we all had to leave. I thought that was kind of unfair and strange. I liked the music. That was a fun part. Uh, Other things that we did in church were fun. Um, So it wasn't church. It was just that one weird person that took up way too much time talking that I didn't really care for. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm ranting here, but I'm actually getting to a point that I should go ahead and disclose isn't related to the sermon at all. But... (laughs) Why do you think we have a sermon time in church? And this is one of those points where we can be open to discussion. Any thoughts? Why do we have a sermon in church? Teaching. Teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any... Encouraging? Cool. Yeah. Um, it is a teaching moment. It is a time uh, originating, you know, from a time whenever uh, people didn't read much if at all, and weren't, you know, the most educated. We've gotten to a point where, you know, generally people are able to open up the Bible and they can read those words that still don't make sense, even if you know how to read, and we can kind of interpret for ourselves. And so I do want to, you know, kind of put this out there, that if ever there's a point where I make the sermon too much about teaching, stop me. Because personally... I don't believe that the sermon time needs to be all about teaching. It is, it's my own personal philosophy that I want this to be a time of thinking. I want this to be a time of questioning. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I conform to whatever this uh, holy text says? Why is this a part of my life? And I want, this, I want this time to be a time of thinking, and I talk as much as I do to kind of prompt those thoughts, because it's important. It's important that we think about why this matters to us. Because if we can answer that question, if we can let it be meaningful to us, then we can take it out to the world and do something with it. If you haven't noticed by now in all of my time in preaching, I'm not so much one for being people who just come, you know, fill up a pew for about an hour and then leave and return the next week. I like for us to go and be a people who do something. And so today, as we're in our thinking moment, I want us to think about something, a question. Why did Rome fall? Yeah, like where, did, where did that come from? <laughs> why, why did Rome fall? It's a question I was thinking about earlier this week. It's not, it's not a typical question for me. It's not like I go around thinking about, you know, historic empires and what happened to them all the time, but uh, generally came up to me this week and it was old. (laughs) That's what Mark said. Mark said it fell because it was old. That many historians debate about uh, why Rome fell. Uh, They go back and forth between external and internal causes. Um, Some say it's because of the rise of uh, the Goth Empire. 
you know, barbarians in this time, they just were overpowered Rome. Some people say it was internal causes, what's become known as the moral depravity of Rome. And, you know, we can go back and forth about, you know, what it actually was, but I think I actually answered the question that's plagued historians for, for many years. It's as simple as conflict. Conflict being the reason why Rome fell. It's the same reason why empires like the Persian Empire, the King Empire, the Ottoman Empire, even the British Empire fell. By the way, Rome wasn't like that big of an empire, believe it or not. I took the time because I was curious to figure out how large the Roman Empire was. And if you look at a list of largest empires based on you know, square mileage, how much of the world they covered, Rome went, ranked in about 18th. Uh, the British Empire was number one, fun fact. Uh, I digress. Conflict is the reason why these empires end up falling. Internal and external conflict, not just wars, definitely wars were a part of it for a lot of them. Sometimes internal conflict, people didn't like how things were being run. The leaders didn't like whoever else was in power. There was constant uh, vying for figuring out how on earth we're going to do this and just not a lot of care for one another. Conflict is a curious thing because it's easy to stir. I don't pretend to have a lot of power. I do recognize being in the pastoral role that there is some amount of power here. I can say things. But I, I do recognize that with just a few words, I could have just about everybody in this room pretty mad at me. Conflict is easy to stir. Conflict is also hard to stop. People are still fighting today about things we were supposed to have resolved ages ago, like racism. Conflict is hard to stop. And conflict seems never-ending. People, just, it's always going on. In fact, right now, today, this very day, and debatably, there are 25 active wars or warlike conflicts going on in our world. And these are just those that have had uh, a minimum of 100 deaths in the past year. 25 going on right now. Conflict seems never ending. But then conflict is not just large scale violence. It happens all around us and is largely amplified in the news. It seems like every time I uh, turn on the news or pop it open on my phone, there's breaking news. Conflict is the headline. Even if it's the conflict between the queen and Harry and Meghan. Conflict just seems to be promoted in the news. Even as we inch closer and closer to election day, conflicts rise over how the country should be run and what side you are on might just determine if we can be friends. Even in the United Methodist Church, right now we're dealing with our own conflicts that have pushed many people to the edge and continues to make people on every side feel marginalized. And the worst part is we can't even talk about our thoughts and opinions because we might offend someone and even lose that friend forever. Conflict is a curious thing. I know it's out of season, but it does make me think of, it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, when Linus says, I've learned that there are three things you do not discuss with people. Anybody remember them? Religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. 
things that can stir up conflict because we have differing opinions on how it should happen or why it should happen. And it's just enough of a difference that we tend not to like each other for it. All of this fear of stirring up conflict because we tend to dislike conflict. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Enneagram. It's, it's one of the many personality type indicators out there. Uh, it, I like it a lot because it's based on uh, historical uh, ancient methods. Uh, the, in the Enneagram, I'm what's called an Enneagram type nine. In the Enneagram type nine, they're labeled the peacemakers. Um, that's an inaccurate description in my opinion. It's really just that we try to avoid conflict at all costs. We really don't like being in conflict. We really don't like it whenever people get upset with us or start raising their voice at us or stuff like that. It's an ideal role for a pastor. So what, as we're talking about conflict, would be considered the opposite of conflict? Another opportunity to respond if anybody would like. What's the opposite of conflict? Peace. Peace. Yes, thank you. Peace is the opposite of conflict. We talk a lot about peace. We talk a lot about peace. Like a lot. So with how much we talk about peace, why is it so hard to obtain? In other words, what does it take to actually make peace? I wonder, a thinking moment here, what if we no longer thought about peace as an unattainable ideology and started recognizing that each and every one of us have a hand in peacemaking? I'm not saying that we all need to go off and specialize in conflict resolution or mediation or whatever, but I do think that we have the opportunity to display acts of peace in a world so desperately in need of peace. Our world desperately needs peace. There's always something to war about. There's always something to be in conflict about. But let us hear once more what Paul spoke to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, verses eight, uh, 1 through 8. Paul says, if, there, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, in other words, if you care at all, if you have even just an ounce of love within your bones, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you imagine what it means to live that out, to be of the same mind of Christ. You see, we are challenged with reflecting the image of the greatest peacemaker to ever have lived, the one even called the Prince of Peace, by enacting peace just as he did. See, Jesus, there's a lot of conflict around Jesus. 
A lot of people didn't like the things that he was doing, things that he was teaching. But every time conflict arose, he responded to enact peace in the same way each time. Jesus displayed the antonym of conflict by serving others. And peace will only come if we ourselves seek to serve. Service is the path toward peace. This month, we've been uh, talking about building a year of excellence, living into a meaningful and fruitful 2020. It's going to be a big year. I feel it. I really feel it within me that 2020 is going to be a big year, and not just because it's nice and neat. You have the 2020, and it looks really good, and it's easy to remember when you're writing the date down. But I really believe that 2020 is going to be a year of excellence. But one thing that can turn a year of excellence into one of the worst years ever is conflict whether that be conflict with a loved one or a stranger, whether it be external or internal conflict, it doesn't take much, just a little conflict to really ruin what's been a great day or even a great year. So either way, I believe that we need to seek out a year of excellence through peace. And if there's one thing that we can glean from Jesus' life, it's that peace only comes through service. I really believe that's the truth, that peace only comes through service. We've been talking about peace for far too long. It doesn't matter if it's a political leader or a pageant queen. World peace is always on people's minds. But yet we never seem to get there. The United Nations has entire divisions promoted to peace building and peacekeeping. And yet we still aren't quite there. And I think it's because we spend too much time talking about it and not enough time practicing peacemaking. Not enough time in humility serving others. And so having the same mind that having the same mind in us that was in Christ means looking to those whom we might easily find conflict and recognizing that if Jesus came not to be served but to serve, then maybe I can do the same. Get that. The God of the universe took on human form and came here not to be served. That's unlike any other God in the world. Not to be served, but to serve. Surely we can do the same. Yeah, but Micah, you have no idea how infuriating this person can be. It's like every time they open their mouth, I just want to punch them. Paul reminds us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Friends, it's not always about us. It's not always about us. It's not always about me or you. Sometimes it's about them. And that's something we need to grasp because we are called to be servants to all, to spread the gospel message in our very deeds. One of the greatest peacemakers of all time, St. Francis of Assisi, once said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Let that sink in. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. It's one of those actions speak louder than words kind of things. That our deeds 
can move mountains a lot better than us just yelling at a mountain. Peace comes and conflict ceases whenever we serve. But here's the real kicker. In his letter, it's important for us to remember that Paul is not speaking to any one individual. He's not even speaking to a bunch of individuals who are just like gathered there in the, in the city square. Paul is speaking to the church, to the whole body, to the church. We've spoken the past few weeks about the, how the church can only excel within the vision of God and we've talked about how the church is meant to be a community of relationships, but today I want to take the identity of the church a step further. So I believe the church is called to be a community of relationships guided by, the, by God's vision to make peace here on earth through service. And the church has long since known that the best way to make the world a better place is through service, giving of ourselves for others. It's the whole reason why every single church you go to has some mission or ministry that it contributes to, even in the smallest way. In fact, even when it was first starting out, the early church got much of its recognition because they would provide last rites and funerals for those who had passed away. They gained their recognition because they were serving the people where no one else would. And this isn't a new concept but it's one, of the easy, it's one that's easily swept under the rug because this is the most challenging. It requires us humbling ourselves and saying, my work doesn't matter as much as those in need. It means saying, my recreation doesn't matter as much as those in need. It requires us saying, my money doesn't matter as much as those in need. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that these things are bad things. These things are healthy and should be in our lives and should be used properly. But what I am saying is that service requires sacrifice. It requires a bit of us giving. We are called to bring peace in a world of conflict through our service. And so my question to challenge us today is could we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than ourselves. Could we, each of us, look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others? Could we be a people who serve in the midst of conflict? If every empire has fallen because of conflict, because of a failure to instigate authentic peace, then what might be lying in wait for us if we neglect peace as well? Friends, we have an incredible opportunity as the church and as individuals to go out into the world in service to spread peace to a world so desperately in need of peace. So let us be that people. Peacemakers, not conflict instigators. Let us be people who serve one another out of humility, regarding others as even better than ourselves. And let us pray together this morning.